Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome to HashiCasts. Today, we have Adrian author of Looks Good to Me, Constructive Code Reviews. Adrian, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do and why write this book? Sure. Thanks for having me, uh, HashiCast and Rosemary, everybody listening. I'm super happy to be here. Um, yeah, a little bit about myself. I fell into tech, so I was not one that was like, I'm going to be a software engineer. And I knew this since I was six. I actually wanted to be a pastry chef when I was younger and then found out that um, I probably shouldn't do that. I do that now as a hobby. Um, But I started out as a student technician for school to help pay for a job that turned into a software development internship. And that's kind of where I said, oh, this is actually kind of fun. I like solving problems. I like dissecting things and trying to find the root cause for things. And so that's what led me into software development initially. After that, I spent probably the last 10 years in software development with a .NET C Sharp background. And then more recently, JavaScript never got into the frameworks. (laughs) Um, And then after that, again, I accidentally fell into developer advocacy. So uh, most recently, I worked uh, for MongoDB. And now I am currently a senior developer advocate at Cisco. Um, So you'll see me creating educational content, uh, going to conference talks, writing educational uh, stuff like videos or blogs and all sorts of things. Developer advocacy is a whole gamut of things. <laughs> I think with Cisco, people aren't really going to immediately jump to JavaScript, .NET, C Sharp sort of background. So interestingly, like, what is what is developer advocacy at Cisco for you? <laughs> that is the question I always get, even in my own interview there. They're like, so, you know, when you hear Cisco as a developer, you're like, well, how is that relevant to me other than maybe you have a router from them or maybe you've dabbled with some hardware like switches with them. But other than that, you don't think of them in the developer sense. And so that's kind of what I was brought on to do was to say, hey, is there anything Uh, relevant to developers where we can become more relevant. Uh, It is a networking company. It's a hardware-focused company. But as I started to learn, I've been there for a little over a year now, there's a lot of really cool stuff that Cisco is doing behind the scenes. We just don't know. Specifically with AI, there are actually about, about 60 plus products that Cisco has that is backed by AI. We just don't know it yet, but I think we'll be slowly sharing some of that uh, now since it's a little bit hot right now. Um, and on the other side, I think there's a really big opportunity to branch development and networking together. So I was certainly one of those developers when I got a cores error or is anything networking related. I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) Let me throw it over the fence and hope that they can figure it out. Uh, So trying to find those opportunities. And then to reverse that, there are a lot of networking engineers who want to get into programming or to automate the things that they do. And so it's a really nice, specific niche to kind of attack those audiences and say, here's how I can help you best. So there's a lot of introductory content, a lot of best practices content uh, that I can help out with there specifically for Cisco. And then the last big part of that is to just, again, get Cisco in front of more developer faces. 
Yeah, it's hilarious because I came from the network engineering space and I wanted to be more of a developer. And over the years, that has that's just how my experience has evolved. And I still work quite a bit in network space and I still enjoy the foundations, but I find myself really interested in all of the software development practices that are out there. Um, and I think it has really made my life a lot easier as just a general infrastructure engineer knowing these practices. Um, they, you know, I can't tell you the number of times that a test saved me from pushing some really, really big change that would affect infrastructure out because I had the opportunity to test it and look at it from a development standpoint. Um, so I highly, anybody who's an engineer, systems engineer, network engineer, who's listening, that infrastructure engineer, who's listening to this, and you're a little hesitant about getting into uh, developer concepts and developer skill sets, it's great. You have people like Adrian here to help you um, and be brave. You can do it. <laughs> totally agree. Yeah. there. I would argue as well that you have a little bit of a better foundation, actually, because a lot of the things that we do with software development uh, rely on the network. So having that foundation and going in, I think you're a little a little bit up, a little level up uh, than someone who's starting out on the software development side. So what inspired you to write a book on code reviews? Because I feel like code reviews can be very controversial depending on the organization or the people you're working with. So your uh, response to that is exactly why. It's, um, it's something that is so key to software development. And yet we treat it as this burden of like, oh, I don't want to do it. It's like unit tests or writing documentation. It's part of the job. Like this is not just a, a nice to have or a thing that's like, if I feel like it, I'm going to do it. When we talk about software development, it's not just writing the code. And especially as a professional software developer who works with other people, you're not just writing code for yourself. So taking all of that into account um, I wanted to take this process that I believe was super important and make other people aware of how important it is and to kind of pick it apart and say, why do people not like it? What do they not like about it? Why do they feel like it's more of a hindrance rather than a help? And so all of these learnings from my own career, the past you know, 10, 11 years, talking to different people, talking to different developers, just kind of uh, aggregating all of that information and wanting to share that because this I feel is something it doesn't matter where you are, what language you're, you're uh, learning, what kind of industry you're in. This is going to be something that is relevant to you. And I wanted to share as much as I could about that and hopefully try to make code reviews better for everybody. Uh, for those who are not familiar with code reviews, because we do have a mixed audience here, where do you start? Like, what is the fundamental foundational thing that you should be thinking about when you start your first code review? Yes. So at a very generalized definition of it, code review is any process where you have someone other than yourself look at the code and really analyze it for a specific set of reasons. Maybe it's to uh, check it against some team standards or coding conventions. Maybe it's to look for bugs or to find flaws or look at it and say, hmm, maybe there's something, a better way to do this, or you're not thinking of an edge case. So in that very general sense, that is what I consider a code review. The majority of my book does focus on the, the pull request version of this, which is where most of my experience has been. And I feel as a, I would say hopefully the more common, lowest common denominator among most developers where you write some code, uh, you open something called a pull request or a merge request or a change request or 
and um, depending on the version system or code review tool you're using. And, you know, you put up these changes to be reviewed by somebody else, ideally, <laughs> and um, they can look at your codes, uh, code changes, uh, write some comments on it, depending on if they have, have other questions or feedback. And then depending on that, uh, it's either accepted or rejected, and then it can move along in the continuous integration uh, pipeline to be merged in and so on and so forth. So that's a code review as I talk about it moving forward and in the book. You know, in the infrastructure space, when I used to do change management requests <laughs> and, you know, it's very similar. We just never called it a code review, right? We would say, okay, these are the changes I'm planning to make. And hopefully someone on this advisory board is paying attention to the list of changes that you're making as well as your rollback plan and anything that's going awry. Uh, and I don't think that's dissimilar from a code review from a code review from you know a software standpoint they're both code reviews at the end of the day uh, but what I do find sometimes challenging is well what makes a good code review versus a bad code review oh we're gonna need like five more episodes for that but um, I think if I had to really concisely put it together a good code review, does what you want it to. And let me explain because that that's different for every team. If your goals are to say, transfer knowledge across your team so that everyone levels up together and is aware of what the code base is doing, then you know, when you perform a code review and you find that everyone can attack or uh, review other parts of the code base, no problem, then I would say that's a good code review. If your goal is to knowledge transfer, but you're only picking the same person to review a specific piece of the code base, and then, you know, that person goes on vacation and now you're stuck and you have to wait for that person to get back because nobody else can do a code review, then I would say that's a bad code review if that's your goal is to knowledge transfer. Um, another really common goal is, you know, we, this is also highly debated, but you use a code review to find flaws very generically. Not all flaws are going to be found in a code review, but again, depending on your goal, if that is your goal and you're able to track that and say, hey, we were able to catch this in a code review, then that is a good code review. If you don't find the intended flaws or you do release a bug out to production, then I would I would argue part of it might be a bad code review, but it also could say um, it, there's a part in your uh, automatic processes, your CI and CD processes that might also be having gaps. So, uh, you know, very generically, you can't say one is good or bad without understanding first what the goals are for the review that you're trying to hold. I think that was an impressive table in your book that I was like, wow, I need to know this because there are a list of people. Check it out. Um, it's on early release right now at time of this recording. But uh, there's a great table of all of the goals and how you review them with your in your team. I think normalizing on your team how you expect to approach anything, whether it be how you push code, uh, work on a code base is very helpful. Um, I didn't really think about it with code reviews, though. So it's actually something I might bring back and say, let's establish some goals for code review. But besides knowledge transfer, what are some other goals that someone might have when they're doing a code review? So likely the most um, common one that you would think of is code base improvement and stability. So when you talk about finding code smells like, you know, 
memory leaks or things that might be done in a better way, better implementation. Uh, sometimes you find undeclared variables. These are all these little things that we feel shouldn't be in the code that could cause some unintended behavior uh, sometime in the future. We try to find that. Or if we find things that are not aligning to standards, if your team has coding standards or you're in a particular framework or a language and they're going against those conventions, you may want to point some of those things out. Um, if you're trying to find you know, edge cases that may not have been considered in the code that you're looking at, those are some things to bring up. So all of these things altogether, the granularity and to the extent of which you find these things, again, are very much debated. Um, but as it stands very generically, you still look for that at some in some capacity in a code review uh, as a human, because not all of the things we find can be automated. Um, knowledge transfer is one that we've talked about, which is, I think, a very important one. Something that is uh, uh, that is similar to knowledge transfer is actually having a very good record for your code base. So. Um, Knowledge transfer is, yes, in the moment when you are going through a code review and other people see how you've written the code and you share that amongst the team, you eliminate those knowledge silos, right? That's one way. But if you also create really good pull requests filled with context, filled with detail, filled with um, the why behind why you're doing it, as well as any decisions and nuances that have led up to that, that makes for a very, very good record later on. For example, if you have new team members coming on, or even if you have some random thing that comes up later on, you're like, oh, you can trace it back to that particular um, pull request or those set of code changes because you have documented it so well. So I think knowledge transfer is both of those things. Um, and the last part is uh, mentoring um, could be a really, really good goal that you can have for code reviews. Um, I know we like to think of having only the people that's appropriate review our code, and that's right to an extent to make it valuable, but we tend to forget to add either newer team members uh, or newer people to programming in general on those code reviews because we feel, quote unquote, they can't contribute in a meaningful way. And that's not true. They can be on there as an optional reviewer to kind of say, you know, learn what is happening, see what the discussions that are occurring and understand what is happening. But it also allows for more senior members to kind of give them instant feedback and give them, uh, you know, guide them through their code base as well as their own programming journey to say, hey, here's a better way to do this, or you may have forgotten this, or, you know, all of the things that come with mentoring a junior developer or someone who's new to development or the team uh, can happen through the code review. So those are probably the big uh, main pillars or goals that I do talk about as goals for the code review. Yeah. And speaking of feedback, it's common that when someone is new to a code base, uh, you know, they'll make a lot of mistakes. And oftentimes when you, you know, when someone else does a code review, uh, they may fall into this habit of either making terse or six, very succinct pieces of feedback, uh, or just in general, just not very nice pieces of feedback either. Um, so what makes a, a helpful comment uh, for during a code review versus something that's maybe less helpful? I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of the big pieces of dread that people feel when about code reviews is they're either not ready to um, 
accept the feedback because we can we tend to associate ourselves, our worth, our expertise um, with the code that we write. So, you know, it's a bit nervous for someone to criticize that. But it's also difficult as a reviewer because, you know, not all reviewers do leave harsh feedback like, oh, this is terrible. Why did you implement it this way? But sometimes they do have terse uh, comments or things that could be interpreted as uh, a harsh comment. And that's kind of the the, the um, blessing and curse of having tools, uh, you know, like GitHub. It's the most, I would argue, one of the most popular ways uh, people conduct code reviews. And when you leave comments in this digital way, there's a lot of context, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of body language that is left out. Then you talk about language barriers and you talk about um, different levels of understanding of the code base itself. There's a lot that can get lost in translation on a screen. So understanding all of that, uh, I think the best way to write a comment has three things about it. It's objective, it is as specific as possible, and it has a clearly defined outcome. Those three, if you keep those three characteristics in mind about every comment that you want to write as a reviewer, I think you'll be set up for success to make sure that the person will not take it in the wrong way, that there is something actionable that the person can do about it, and that you are as clear as possible with what you want to say in the comment. It kind of forces you to say, you know, if you're asking someone to make a change, why are you asking them to make that change? Is it because there's a part that you don't understand? Or is there something factual that you're saying, hey, this is not right, or hey, this is not towards coding conventions? There's an objective reason why you're asking someone to make a change. And so keeping those three in mind as a reviewer, uh, I think your comments are going to be better. And then as an author, um, having comments like that, it's more likely that you'll understand why the person is asking you to do something. And if they really try to keep it as objective as possible, then you should know that this is about the code and it's not about you. It's about making the code base better. And it's about um, uh, together as a team making the code better. And it's ne usually never about you. So to try to disassociate yourself from that, having comments of that form makes it easier for us as authors to kind of say it's about the code, not about me. I think there's also some, some teams I've worked with are interested in doing this. Some teams are less so, but some teams that I've worked with have talked about doing the positive comment, right? Which is something you can still be specific, but saying something like, I really like the way that you did, you implemented this because of X, Y, Z. Is that something that people should be doing during, during code reviews? Is that maybe depending on team, waste of time. Some people told me at one point it was a waste of time, but. <laughs> I actually love that you brought that up. I forgot about that. Um, yes, I definitely advocate for it because, you know, thinking about code reviews, again, there's such this negative connotation with it. We want to try to change it for the better. So I would say yes, for the most part, if there is something that you like, call it out. As an author who puts up their code changes to be reviewed, you're just like mentally preparing, okay, hopefully I just don't get so many comments that tell me to change something. But it can be nice to receive something really, you know, positive or say, hey, I really like the way that you implemented it. Great work. What is the waste there other than putting that really quick comment as a reviewer? The benefits you get from that as a person and as a team, the how 
I think outweigh the negative aspect of, oh, it might take a little bit more time to just add that extra comment. So yes, write positive comments if you see them. Uh, I came from a, a group of people who really, really love trunk-based development. Um, and I think the biggest question that I got in those situations was like, well, where does code review fit in? Um, and part of the school of thought was that, well, you're doing trunk-based development and you're doing pairing, right? You're pair programming. So code reviews versus pair programming, is it a versus? Is it a with? Is it a, where does this all fit together? <laughs> that's a great question. I think that's one of the chapters I have yet to write, but I will say that just because we talk about this formalized, semi-formalized process of going through and making sure all code changes are reviewed via a pull request, it does not mean that your team has to do that. So if your team does engage in trunk development, trunk-based development, and you are doing pair programming, pair programming is a version of review in and of itself. So depending on how thoroughly you do it, depending on how large of the feature you're working on, and depending on how well the pairs actually go together and how quickly they iterate through that feedback and give that feedback, then maybe you don't need a formalized process. Maybe the actual integration of it is just a formality for record keeping, for documentation. It's kind of like when you get to that point, it's less of the code review that we've spoken of before, where we look for all of these different things and, and flaws and goals or knowledge transfer. Instead, you kind of shift that to where you, you do those um, actions during the actual pair programming itself. And it still gives you all the benefits of review. You're just doing it in a less formalized process. So that's completely valid. It's still a review. The point is, if you get those actions done in some way, it doesn't have to be through a pull request. And I think that's okay. Um, what works for your team is not always going to be what works for other teams. And I think the, the second question that comes up by extension is where does code review fit in CI, right? Because your CI is going to run, your uh, frameworks are going to run with tests, you know, various tests. Where does this fit in? Right? Does it fit in before production, right before production? Does this fit in before unit tests? You know, what are some ways in which a code review should maybe be automated as part of that process as well? So I like to consider the code review as a major part of a robust CI, CD, continuous integration, continuous uh, deployment solution. And that's, but I like to consider the code review the first step. It's, it's the catalyst. Without the code review, I don't think anything else would make sense. And here's why. Code review is where the human aspect comes in. So, there's a lot of things you can do beforehand and you absolutely should. So that's automating things like linting, like formatting, um, doing static analysis if you can. Fix all of those issues before the code review. Do those as much as you can during development. And even those steps, you can have those as pre-build checks. So if you open a pull request or you're about to have your code changes reviewed, if you can automate those checks again, that can help you lessen the time and the um, annoyance of reviewers who kind of look at uh, pull requests or code changes and they go, oh, these are not ready. Like there's some little thing that is not ready. So all of those should be automated. Once all of those are ready and you know that the code changes are actually ready to be reviewed by a reviewer, then they can perform their review. And I think that's the right place for it because once a human has had that time to 
use their judgment and find all of the things that automated tests can't find or um, uh, soak up that knowledge that would not otherwise happen if you just automated everything, then you can kick off the rest of your CI/CD process once a human has looked at the code. So that's where I feel like it falls in there. Automated tests, automated unit tests, um, automated uh, checks like for security vulnerabilities. Um, there's a part in my book where I talk about GitHub Actions and all the things you can do. Absolutely, definitely do that. But Again, all of those checks, I feel, should happen during the continu continuous integration uh, portion. So do the code review first. Once it's accepted, then do all the rest of the automated checks and move forward in the pipeline. Got it. And what I guess is something that's more prevalent, I would suppose, in, in Terraform and infrastructure specifically, um, we have a lot of our community who are, who are interested in see, you know, the, the pipeline for infrastructure as code, mostly because they're looking at it, they're building modules. They're doing, so one of the biggest questions that we have from the community is, well, how, where do integration tests fit in? Is it worthwhile for me to put a code review in before I run an integration test, whether or not this piece, this change actually works in the environment and I expect it to, or should I be doing a code review after whenever I validated that it's functionally working? That's a good question. Integration tests are always hard to place. I would still argue that doing the code review first should be the first line before the rest of the um, pipeline occurs or the rest of the tests occur. And again, it's because you have this foundation set for what is about to enter into production or the higher levels or higher environments. So when you have that basis and you have that understanding of what's new or what is about to be changed, I think that makes it a, an easier way for you to assess whether or not something is wrong later on. So that would be my uh, opinion. <laughs> and uh, I think we mentioned AI before. What's a, what's a podcast these days without mentioning AI? Um, there's a lot of talk about generative AI, right? Um, and generative AI writing code. I'm guessing that folks have also thought about applying this in the context of code reviews. It, have you encountered this? Are there actually ways that someone can create automated code reviews that I, I don't know anything, but you know, I'm going to ask someone who knows more. <laughs> I mean, I don't pretend to know more either, but it's certainly something I've had to consider because there are so many tools that are coming out that promise this. And why wouldn't code reviews be something that's you know thought of as a good way to apply AI? Um, in, in my opinion, if, if, I think you can apply this to AI in general, but specifically for code reviews, I still think it is good to assist us, but it will never replace us. That sounds super ominous, but <laughs> it's good to assist. So for example, GitHub Copilot or any of these code generation, generative AI tools that can write code for us. Yes, they can maybe save you some time. It can stub some code out for you and you just fill in the blanks uh, or it um, you may forget the syntax for something and you ask how to implement it. It can help you in that way. It can generate it. But what's most important and everything, uh, most everyone should be calling this out is that you still need to look at it. Everyone still says, hey, yes, it can generate this for you, but make sure to review it first before you actually use it in production, before you actually integrate it. And so that key part is where I say, 
you know, for code reviews, maybe we can use it to assess, hey, um, I've, I saw a, um, a widget that estimates how long a code review might take. And so it applies labels to uh, a pull request that says, this has four, four files. It should take about five minutes to review. Uh, so that's like an assisted way, right? That might help reviewers who have multiple uh, reviews to go through kind of prioritize, hey, I can knock these ones out right away. And then these ones I'll save for when I have like a longer spurt of focused time. So again, assist, but never replace. Uh, there's another widget that I saw that says maybe it can assist in actually writing writing the comments themselves. And again, um, I, yes, you know, you can have it write and say this particular piece can be implemented in a better way, or you can stub out the comment that you want to say, but you still have to review it. You still have to make sure, is this actually what I wanted to say? Is it in the tone that I meant it to be? Is this actually a question and less of a, an ask? So, where you can use AI to assist us, but I don't think it will ever replace what we do. Um, and then the last part to that is, even if we're able to let it review, so for example, static analysis is a good example where it can go line by line, it can read every piece uh, line of code that we write, think of all the, find all the different issues that we might not even see as a human, let it do that. It's good for that. But what it can't do is determine developer intent. So it might say, hey, this is supposed to add, this function is supposed to add, but in within the function itself, it actually doesn't do that. And only a human can actually see this is either yes, a problem or it's not a problem. So assist, but never replace. There's, I think there's still a long way to go before we can fully hands off, say, you know, take care of it. I don't need to look at it. Yeah. And I guess if your goal is knowledge transfer or mentoring someone on your team, uh, I don't know if you can accomplish that with it, some AI reviewing it and giving comments back. It's probably not very useful in that regard. <laughs> Excellent point. But also to that point, you know, you can still use AI to say summarize what has changed or help you stub out the uh, description of your PR. I think GitHub has some tools that are they're adding into that. And again, it's it's helping you create a better PR or add more context to the code changes that you're having, uh, presenting. And then everyone that has to be a part of the process, it's just making it easier for them, getting rid of all of those little tasks, mundane tasks that either cause the code review itself to be so long and why people don't like them, uh, or just, you know, make them a really bad <laughs> pull request. Like there are some where just the files are there and you have no idea what it's about. So uh, in those ways, I think AI will be a really, really good thing. Here at HashiCorp, I don't think we use any AI for reviewing any of the code. I'm not sure. Maybe we do. Uh, but I do know that we have a number of PRs and issues that are submitted from community members who aren't within our organization. And it's difficult sometimes to put some standards on how someone contributes back to the code base as maintainers. So how do folks think about scaling code reviews when it's going to be outside of their organization or it's within a broader community, especially in the context of a project in which the source is available for folks to contribute back to? 
I think this is where the prioritization of uh, pull requests come in and where automation can help. So some of these projects, they have hundreds of pull requests. And if you're a very small team, naturally, that's very overwhelming. So I think it's even more crucial to take advantage of automations that help you. So for example, if you have a PR templates. I think you should absolutely take advantage of that to help you ascertain as much information as possible from all of the people that can submit a pull request. And um, adding to that, if there's a way to automate, you know, this much information is needed for you to accurately assess what is in this pull request. If it doesn't have it, you're not even going to look at that pull request because it's not only uh, a waste of your time, because if you have to go down one uh, pull request rabbit hole and gather that information yourself, that's not going to scale, even if you have multiple members, but let alone just yourself maintaining a project. So you can add those kinds of automations. Uh, alongside of that, there are the pre-build checks that I mentioned earlier. So if you have a new feature, for example, and you are always expecting contributions to have accompanying unit tests, there's a check for that in uh, um, in the, a pre-build check, rather, where somebody opens a pull request, it can automatically check that for you. And if it doesn't have it, again, you can kind of put those away and say, these are not ready for me to review. You have to prioritize now what you're going to spend your time on and which pull requests or contributions are going to be worth your time to look at. So by taking away a lot of the fluff and getting rid of that for yourself and putting more of that work either on the author, the contributor, to put all of that information in there or in automations to say, hey, these are ready, these are not, I think that'll be a very big difference of when it comes to you as a maintainer to, you know, be able to get through it and not just get completely overwhelmed. Yeah. And I will say that, you know, we are very fortunate and we have some, you know, some folks who are, they're, they're a resource to help triage, understand some of these pull requests, assess whether or not um, it's something that it will be, they'll be able to merge into the main code base or not. Um, and even that's not enough to keep up with some of the volume of pull requests that we get um, and for better or for worse, like some of them will just sit out there for a really long time and then they won't get updated. Um, so how do you feel about bots closing PRs? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a good and a bad thing. It's, it really depends if they are, if we could fine tune the conditions uh, to say whether or not a bot should close it, I think that it's a little bit better, right? You can be more specific about when to close things. You don't miss things accidentally because of automation. <laughs> but of course, I think we've all experienced the bad things where you know it closed it without your knowledge and you're like, oh, this is actually not supposed to be closed. It's a balance. I, I think it's good for at that scale to take care of some of the easier uh, pull requests or things that are um, tedious that need to be removed or cleared away to make space for the larger ones. But we need to be cautious of uh, making sure they don't close the ones that are important that need to be seen. So if we were able to configure that, I think that would make it uh, more amenable to developers to work with more bots if they weren't so strict like that. So tell us a time in which code review was particularly inspiring or there was a challenge that you had to solve regarding a code review. 
So one of my favorite ones to share um, and sneak sneak peek to anyone uh, because it's in the book, but um, there is a time when I was working and we were porting over parts of our front end uh, application to use ES6 JavaScript. Uh, We were using old versions. And what we were doing was Every time we would get into a code review, we would get so annoyed with it because lots of us were just messy. We would leave a lot of console logs debugging uh, pieces there, and we would just get a whole slew of comments that say, hey, you need to remove this, or hey, you left this out. And we would just go back and forth, and it was a very big cause of annoyance for our team. And so at that time, I just learned about ESLint. And I said, oh, what is this? Let me look into this. And I saw that they had a very specific rule for that, the no console, um, and to actually log it as an error. Uh, so I started with that. I said, hey, team, look at this really cool thing that I found. We should probably add this to our IDE. So I asked everybody to just, let's just try it. Let's just try it, have it um, initially warn us so that we can fix them before we actually open the pull request. And we found that that worked. You know, we completely removed or significantly decreased and then removed any other comments from that point forward of, oh, you left a console log here in your code changes. Now we can actually focus on actual issues or things. We're not annoyed because we have to go, oh, we got to push another update because we have to clean up all of these console logs. And so that was a key turning point for our team because we started out with that's literally just that rule. It was a single rule um, in our um, ESLint config. And after that, we started to look for other things that could help us um, lower the time that we spent in our pull requests on these really silly things. So we added, you know, no alert, no prompt uh, rules in there. Um, Because we were porting over to ES6, we said no vars. We wanted to either use const or let whenever we declared variables. And every time we did go say, hey, let's reassess. Does this actually need block scope or does it not? No more vars anywhere. And then there were a lot of really, um, I don't want to say complex, but, you know, when you are in the middle of coding and you read code ternary operators that says, let me check this and if this true, else false. But really, you could just write the condition because it will evaluate to true or false. We had a lot of those. And surprisingly, there was a rule for that as well in ESLint where it's uh, no unneeded ternaries. And so that would just find any of these checks, which we had a lot of, and just made them simpler. There's an easier way to write that condition. And so doing all of that, um, the lesson that I learned here was a lot of people hate code reviews because they take so long. And why do they take so long? It's because of stuff like this. So the more that you can automate those away and the more that you can fix these kinds of things during development and remove them out of the code review, the better the code review will be, the more focused it can be, and the more the process will be liked by everyone because it doesn't take so long and they're not you know, going back and forth uh, working on these silly issues. So that's a big part of the book is to automate as much of this as, can- as you can and uh make code reviews quicker by getting rid of those low-hanging fruit, the petty stuff away during development. 
And it was, it's fun because I'm like, I'm trying to convert some of the JavaScript into Terraform for the audience because we're familiar with Terraform. But if it, like, basically to those who are listening, it would be kind of nice if we had a, a lint, a linter in Terraform that told you, Hey, don't use variables here. Instead, use a local and set it as something that is internal to your module, for example. Or it'd be kind of nice if we had something that said like, you don't need a ternary operator. You should just pass a, a very, a Boolean variable to this module that says true or false, and that would expedite the whole process anyway, rather than testing for all these things. Um, and so the, I think that a lot of this is, like you pointed out, it's something we don't really want to sit there and look for when we're looking at someone else's code. We're hopefully looking at for the bigger picture things that, you know, maybe we don't have the ability to check for or something that, you know, we've discovered uh, you know, for someone else, and we want to just communicate it to our team. So I think it's a it's a very good example of how much you can automate some of the these little checks, and they make a big impact. I agree, and thank you for that. That was an excellent uh, translation there. <laughs> um, and one fi- a, a final question before we get to the less serious one, but you know, there are some people who think about doing code reviews with subject matter experts. So for example, there's a code review who's done by like a security team, a code review done by a compliance team or a business, uh, you know, a business unit owner, someone who is more familiar with the logic of the business, maybe isn't so familiar with the code itself, but they're looking for very specific things that's, you know, related to a certain subject. Is that something that people should be doing? Is there a better way that we can integrate subject matter expertise into uh, the coding process. Absolutely. There is this general rule that I push, and that's the more people you can have review your code, the better. End sentence. <laughs> uh, now, when you choose, you know, for larger teams, sometimes uh, when you're new, you're like, you don't know who to ask. Um, you don't know who the experts are, or you don't know who the best person is to review your code. Um, and that's okay. What you can do about that is, um, again, to use a GitHub example, but this is available in other tools, is the concept of code owners. So GitHub has a file literally called the code owner's file, where you can use some um, expressions that say, hey, any files, any let's say any JavaScript files that have been changed, immediately ask this person to review because they are a JavaScript expert. Or let's say you have legacy code and you always want your two you know, most tenured developers to always look at any code that changes there. You can do the same thing. Any part, You can do it by file directory. You can do it by uh, file extension. You can do a whole range of patterns and you can basically divvy up the code base to particular owners. So that's a very good way to have a start to say, hey, these are the best people that should likely take a look at the changes that are being proposed in this part of the code base. And then uh, to add on to what we talked about earlier, um, in you know, sometimes in smaller teams, you have the case where it's always the single senior person who has to look at every review. And so now there's this bottleneck of, okay, they have, you know, 20 review PRs to look at because they're the only senior. So what do you do about that? Well, you that's where you can employ ad 
everybody else to the team. If it is a small team, it doesn't have to be a senior. Add the junior developers, add the intermediate developers, add anybody that is reading and writing code that's part of your code base. Because if you continue to let only the senior developer level up their knowledge of the code base and only look at that code, then it's always going to stay that way. So that's where the knowledge transfer comes in of as you slowly level up the knowledge of the whole team and you, you, know, you may add other people as say optional reviewers so that they can actually look at the code and see what's happening. But as you gradually uh, upgrade everybody's knowledge on the project, there's less of a dependence on a single person. And you, again, spread that knowledge around so that you have more people that you can ask rather than just the single senior developer. So I think those are the two best ways to kind of go about that to not only make sure you pick the best person to review, but to also uh, widen the pool of reviewers that you have to work with as you progress. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think about it from that perspective. It's very easy to just say like one person is the gatekeeper for putting something in production. And you know, they're the only people who know enough about the code base and we just continue to perpetuate <laughs> the problem. <laughs> Pretty much. It's the lose-lose situation where, you know, if someone doesn't go, uh, if the only person that knows anything about your code base goes on vacation, then what? So if you level up the knowledge for everyone, that person can go on vacation, you know, guilt-free. They can actually go on vacation and then everybody else can still go along and not be stuck. And, you know, it's a very common excuse for people. I say excuse because it is. They'll always say, oh, I can't review this because I don't know this part of the code base. Well, when are you going to know about this? If you're going to work on this uh, project or this application, there should be some point where that's no longer the case and that can't be used as an excuse. Um, it should really have all of that knowledge of the code base be dispersed throughout the whole team. So we have one final question for you. Uh, this is a HashiCast tradition in which it is a slightly less serious question. Excited, but, but nervous, but yeah, oh, hey. Okay. Well, I've tailored this. I've tailored this <laughs> okay. uh, a bit. So you, you, know, you have interest in pastry. So if you were a pastry, not what your favorite pastry is, but if you were a pastry, which one would you be and why? That is is an excellent question. Let me think about that for a second. Hmm. I'm, my mind is veering to like, what's your favorite pastry? But that's not the question. I actually, I think I found the best answer. So I would say halo halo, which is a Filipino dessert. And it's actually not my favorite dessert, but the reason why I think I would be halo halo if I were a dessert and I've said dessert as supposed to be pastry. See, now I'm overthinking this question. Dessert in general, it's adjacent. I think I would be hello, hello, because I have so many diverse interests that I'm just like a whole amalgamation of all the things I've ever been interested in in my life. And that's and that's how I fell into a lot of the things that I've gotten into from writing the book, from going becoming a, a developer advocate, from just a software developer to going to conference talks, to learning a little bit about this before going and learning a little bit about that. And also being what I consider uh, more of a generalist, which I think is not a bad thing. A lot of people think you need to be an expert in like, one single thing, but I'm very much the opposite. I, I want to know as much as I can about everything. And I feel like 
in Halo Halo where you have a little bit of everything. You have a little bit of ice cream. You have a little bit of uh, boba balls. You have a bit of condensed milk. All those different things is absolutely me. <laughs> I'm going to consider it a pastry. I know everybody who's like a pastry person out there is probably crying. And there's I'm I'm just saying everybody global appreciation. For, for any dessert, anything sweet. So I'm counting yes. it as a pastry. Okay, thank you for yeah. the exception. Just as you go through this exercise, I must also go through this exercise. Um, oh, okay. I decided I'm a tiramisu milk. I don't know how to say this. Milk cake? It's the one okay. with like a bunch of crepes, you know? Yes, yes. Uh, stacked up, but there's like a tiramisu version. Um, because I'm, you know, I'm generally a twist on a classic. Like I have a pretty classic personality, but I have a lot of weird layers, uh, (laughs) you know, and I'm not overly sweet necessarily, but you know, I'm just an honest, simple person. There you go. (laughs) I like that answer. And that just made me think of if I could refactor my answer because I thought of a pastry. It's it's again, adjacent. I would say honey toast. Honey toast is, I don't know if I don't want to offend anyone. I've only seen it in Korean dessert shops, but I'm sure they have a version of it everywhere. Maybe Japanese. It's literally a block, a cube of sweet toast. And then you add ice cream on top and honey on top. And then it's kind of expanded to say you can add any toppings you want. You can put fruit, brownie pieces, cookie pieces. So in the same fashion, I was trying to think of something that had a lot of stuff in it, that it was a pastry. That's as close as I could come. So there we go. We're not type safe here in this podcast. We are not type safe at the, in this podcast. I, I'm pretty sure, you know, we're we're a little chaotic at times, you know, but it's, <laughs> I think it was a good answer. I'll count it. But Adrian, it was great having you on HashiCast. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Um, if you're, if anybody's listening to this and you're interested in the book, it's called Looks Good to Me, Constructive Code Reviews Available Through Manning. Check it out. Uh, I will certainly be examining and reviewing the tables, the various tables in it about code reviews uh, and some of the structure around it. Um, So thank you again for coming to speak with us today. And for those who are listening, we hope that you tune in next time. Thanks so much. You've been listening to HashiCasts with your host, Rosemary Wong. Our guest today was Adrian Berganza-Taka, author of Looks Good to Me, Constructive Code Reviews. Be sure to tune in next time.